0: Every day, Caitlin Doty gets dozens of questions about death in her work as a funeral director. And she says the best questions come from kids. Can I keep my parents' skulls when they die? Could I be buried in the same grave as my hamster? Is it true that people see a white light as they're dying? When they die, will my cat eat my eyeballs? That last question inspired the title of Dodie's new book, Will My Cat Eat My Eyeballs? In this new book, Dodie answers 35 questions from kids about death, dead bodies, and decomposition. The best-selling author and mortician joins me now in studio to talk about her book and more. Caitlin, welcome to Reset. Thank you for having me. You got real children for that. We did. What a (laughs) high-level radio program. Well, tell us more about what sent you down this path talking about death through this lens of how kids think about it and ask questions about it?
1: Well, I've talked to adults about death as an advocate for death awareness for years, and I think I've come to the conclusion that it's a conversation that most of us should have had when we were about eight years old mm-hmm. and never did. And the conversation we did have was about zombies or was about murder or was about these really awful deaths that is not the normal death for most people in the United States. And so we've never had that conversation. And this was almost my opportunity to go back in time and talk to the inner child of most adults and say, hey, you probably have a lot of questions about the dead body and how it works and what a cremation looks like and what an embalming looks like and what's happening underneath the ground when grandma's in a casket. And these fundamental, almost science body questions that we have when we were kids, probably didn't get answers to and grew up still plaguing us in the back of our minds. What were some of the favorite questions in the book? Uh, My personal favorites are ones about possibilities. Mm. So can I keep my parents' skull? Can I give grandma a Viking funeral? I'm really fascinated by the laws in the United States and the incredible power that they give families, but where that power ends. And where the power ends is usually something called abuse of corpse laws, Which, uh, you know, laws are never sexy, but those are kind of almost interesting, you know, versus other like state statutes, abuse of corpse laws, which basically say you can bury someone, you can cremate someone, you can donate them to science. But anything else you do, decapitate them, burn them on a lake, shoot them out of a cannon, becomes something that is no longer acceptable for the public dignity. Hmm.
0: Can you read us an excerpt from the book? Absolutely, yes.
1: This is, how does a whole adult fit in a tiny box after cremation? It feels weird when a funeral director hands you a silver urn with doves and roses on it, about the size of a coffee can, and says, here's your grandma. Um, grandma was a lot bigger than that, thank you very much. (laughs) It's even stranger when a funeral director hands you the exact same dove and roses urn and says, here's your neighbor, Doug. Wait a second. Doug was six feet four and three hundred and forty pounds. How can he fit in the same urn that grandma fits in? This cremation thing is a scam. (sighs) No, it's not a scam. There's a good reason that people are mostly the same size after cremation. You know when you're nervous about giving a big speech to a group and they tell you to imagine the audience naked? Here's another fun exercise. Imagine the audience as skeletons. Strip away all the skin, fat, and organs, because underneath it all, everyone's skeleton is sort of the same. Some folks are taller, of course, some bones are thicker, some people have only one arm, but for the most part, a skeleton is a skeleton. And whether you're holding an urn containing your grandma or your
0: neighbor Doug, it's a ground-up skeleton in there. So that is the clearest explanation I've ever heard. <laughs> oh, thank you. About cremation. But it, but it makes me wonder what is it about the way kids think about death and decomposition and what happens to a body. You know that sends them down these sort of rabbit yes. holes, <laughs> the, you know, into these wild areas.
1: Well, I think it's almost we haven't told them yet how morbid it is to think that way. It's almost like I have no scientific proof of this, but for adults, it's almost like the synapses have withered because we haven't told them it's OK to be curious about death. Yes, go deeply down that road because adults, of course, ask profound fantastic questions about death. They ask about afterlife and cross-cultural religious practices and fabulous questions, but they're not, hey, okay, I know that bugs eat all the flesh, but why don't they eat the bones? Why is there a skeleton left? And those are the questions that blow my mind open because some of these I didn't even know. Some of these are very, you know, pertinent to what I do as a funeral director, but some of them I was like, you know what? I have to go down that road. My mind has never even gone down that road.
0: What's one of the questions you you had to do that kind of uh Can you donate on? blood after you die? Huh? Can you? You can. I mean,
1: it's they don't they don't encourage it because I think they see living donors as a much steadier source. Like once you can convince a living donor to donate for the rest of their lives, a dead body obviously is you only get one shot to donate that. But yeah, they they started doing um, experiments with Russian dogs in, I believe, the 1920s. And that started off the understanding that
0: blood is viable for a certain period after death. It occurs to me that part of why these questions don't get answered when we're kids is because we're thinking about death at a time often when we've lost someone who we love. And so it's death but through the lens of grief.
1: Of course. Yeah. And I think that's the crucial point for children and adults, frankly, is that you cannot wait until a tragic or painful loss has occurred to engage with this in a curious, open way. Because you have almost lost that opportunity once grandmother is actually sitting in front of you in a casket to talk about decomposition or to talk about these more nitty gritty things. So You want to use things like the death of a pet as an opportunity, which can still be incredibly devastating for a family, of course, but it's an opportunity to say, what questions do you have about Mr. Fluffy? What questions do you have about his burial, about where he's going, about how you're feeling? And just let the child know that you are open to those questions. They may not have them right now, it's sort of similar to sex. You may not want to talk about the birds and the bees right now in this car ride to school to me. But I want you to know that when you have those questions, I'm an open book. I'm an honest person. I'm
0: not going to make you feel bad about having them. This is your third book about death now. They're all bestsellers and your first book was a memoir about lessons you learned working at a crematorium. Your second book explored how other cultures cared for the dead. What what got you fascinated in in this area of study?
1: Death is fascinating. I mean, I have my own personal journey, but I'd just like to say, big plug for death being the source of our creativity and its history and science and literature. It's everything in one is our relationship to our own mortality. So if you're interested in death, go for it. We're here for you to talk about it. But my own journey was that I witnessed a difficult death when I was about eight years old. I was at a local mall and a small child fell over the railing mm-hmm. to what I can only assume was their death. It was pretty gruesome. And that really stayed with me. It made the idea of death profoundly hard and scary and dangerous for me. And I think most of our lives are working on things that we had happened to us or in front of us as a child. And so I went to college. I studied medieval history and I was particularly interested in the late medieval macabre and death traditions in the Middle Ages. And when I was working in San Francisco, I decided I wanted to try and get a job at a crematory. And I really thought that it was going to be something that I did for a year and 40 years later at a cocktail party, someone would go, oh, do you know that Caitlin worked at a crematorium? Isn't that a (laughs) lark?" I have really fun British friends. Apparently, but I fell in love with it. I fell in love with the funeral industry, and more than that, I fell in love with the possibilities that we're still not exploring in the funeral industry.
0: When you say you fell in love with the funeral industry, what was it about it specifically that that you fell in love with?
1: I think it was almost, and paradoxically, it was almost the fact that it was an industry that needed so much reform that was still so. I I was back there cremating bodies. Only maybe once or twice a week did the family come back and do it with me. Most of the time, I was cremating six people a day entirely by myself. And I was an idiot. 23 year old. I didn't know these people. I didn't know their stories. I didn't know their families. Why was I there alone? How did we get to a point where it was this industrial area where I was disposing of bodies? And that really led me to understand the history of the American funeral industry and how systematically we've removed the family from the care of the dead. And that made me very angry. And so my main thrust of my advocacy for the
0: past 12 years or so has been, how do we bring the family back into funerals? Why do you think it's important? I mean, because we're talking about a time that's very difficult. Um, And bringing a family closer into that process, it might be incredibly painful for some people. It, It can be incredibly painful, but it's also incredibly
1: liberating, profound. When you look upon a dead body, it does so many things. First of all, it lets you know this person is no longer here. They're no longer in pain, which can be a nice revelation. They're no longer suffering. They're no longer a part of my community. It also lets you look at death and say, I'm going to die too. How have I been living my life? Death is real. I don't know that I really knew this. I've never seen a dead body before. And third, it lets you take that space to grieve for everyone you never got a chance to grieve for. And... Interacting with a dead body and just being present can be an incredibly profound, life-changing experience for people. And I'm not saying everybody has to do this, everybody get in a room with a dead body right now. But if it's something that you're open to, you should be able to do it and it can change your life.
0: How do you think the people who work in this industry – Maybe also need additional education or support to, you know, if you're going to be present during that experience with a family, it's not just about caring for the body. It's also about providing the kinds of support for the family and loved ones to move through the process you're describing. So what needs to happen in that space? <laughs> that's, a, that's a fantastic question.
1: And I used to be sort of down on the phrase holding space because it seemed very like, ooh, <laughs> But it's true. You have to be the person who holds the space for the family. And when people ask me, how do you do this work? Doesn't it get to you? What I say is that what I have learned to do is if I'm helping a family through the hardest part of their life and they are grateful to me, I can be happy with that. I can feel joy and accomplishment in my job. My job is not to take on their grief and to meet them where their grief is. They have family, they have a community, they have people who do that for them. They don't need a funeral director's prime responsibility to be, I am so sad with you. They need my responsibility to be, I am competent. I know exactly how to file this death certificate. I know exactly how to get what you want. I know how to tell you your rights as a family. I know how to save you money. I know how to hold this space for you. And if I can do that, I can leave at the end of the day feeling good about myself. And we need to transform the idea of the job, I think, as not something that's how sympathetic can you be to the family? Because I don't think that's the way to help them the best.
0: Are we seeing a shift in the industry in the way we think about death?
1: Oh, definitely. Yeah. There's a green movement. There's something called the death positive movement that I'm a part of that says, hey, families should know their rights. We should be more aware of natural options. We should be more aware of less expensive options. We don't have to. You don't have to embalm. You don't have to choose a big vault and a big heavy casket. You can choose something called green burial, which is just a simple hole in the ground and the body right in the ground. You can price shop for funerals. It's not cruel to mom to check out the different prices because they've done studies that funeral homes just across the street from each other can cost thousands of dollars in difference for two similar services. So we need to be more engaged with death. And we need to understand
0: that funeral homes aren't necessarily the experts. Our families are the experts. You frequently give talks and and post YouTube videos on your channel, Ask a Mortician, Mm -hmm. which hundreds of thousands of people subscribe to. Why is it so important to you to change the way we view and think about death from it being like a morbid and scary process to something that's natural, sometimes humorous, and even beautiful? Well, I think
1: because a lot of people are suffering. So many people – if I ever got feedback on my talks or my videos that, oh, this made me more scared of death, I would stop doing them. I probably probably would only take one email like that for me to stop. (laughs) But that's not the feedback I get. The feedback I get was I was incredibly anxious. I was depressed. I was morbidly fixated on death. And then I saw you and the freedom that you had to talk openly about it and not treat it with kid gloves – and just say, hey, this is this is what's happening during a cremation. Here's what's happening in your bones. They get ground up in a machine called the cremulator. Isn't that bonkers? Just having that open, honest discussion without the maybe what they've heard at a funeral home, which is a tone very much like this. When they hear someone that they relate to talk about it in an open, honest way, it really, It doesn't cure their fear of death. That's not the goal. I don't have that kind of power. But it puts them on a path to have a more open, less stressed, less anxious relationship with death. And that's what we need. That's what the whole culture needs to hear, I
0: think. What advice do you have for parents who are maybe thinking about how they need to have these conversations with their kids? Don't force it on them. Don't say,
1: you know, don't do the birds and bees except for like the corpse and I don't know what it would be, the corpse and the (laughs) and the heaven or whatever. Um, Don't force it on them, but just let them know if anything comes up, if someone dies in a cartoon or in a movie or if someone's, you know, a friend's parent at school dies or there's some reason that death comes up, just reinforce, hey, do you have any questions about that? Have you thought about that? Oh, you saw that. We saw that. We found that bird that was dead. Do you have any questions about that? And just, again, reinforce that you are a resource for them because so often children suffer in silence and they read the room so emotionally well and they know that their parents are afraid of it themselves and do not want to talk about it and stigmatize it. So if you just show them, hey, I'm ready to talk about this when you are. I'm an open book. Ask me about decomposition. If I don't know the answer, I'm going to look it up for you. If you have that sort of destigmatization of the idea of talking about death, you're going to have a child that feels comfortable
0: coming to you when something gets hard or tough or scary. That's best selling author and mortician Caitlin Doty. Her new book, Will My Cat Eat My Eyeballs?, answers 35 questions Doty's gotten from kids about death, dead bodies, and composition. Caitlin, thanks so much for stopping by. Thank you so much for having me. And that's your Sunday Reset. Enjoy the rest of your weekend, but get ready because it's going to be even colder tomorrow. But don't worry, we'll warm you up with another episode of Reset. We drop a new episode into your feed at 4 p.m. Monday through Friday. So stay tuned. I'm Jen White. Thanks for listening. And let's talk again soon.